bumper yet, man. So this is the sermon bumper. Me walking on stage while Emmanuel moves his mic, and now imagine an awesome, amazing power chord with the lights rising that just bring us to this moment. At which point I would say, good morning, Calvary. We're glad that you guys are here. It is awesome um, to see you. And if I haven't met you, my name's Peter, one of the guys here on staff. I love that song that we just sang. It's a newer song. Uh, written and sung by a guy named Phil Wickham, Phil Wickham. And this is kind of a challenge I threw out to the first service. Some of you may have never heard that song before. Um, I have heard that song before. It came out maybe seven, eight, nine months ago, I don't know. But but one of the um, cultural differences is when you're in the southeast, man, and you're cruising around town, should you choose to, every other station on your radio dial is like a Christian radio station. It's pros and cons to that. But one of the advantages is, man, if you choose to, when you're standing in line, you know, waiting in Starbucks or a stoplight, man, you're constantly hearing some of the new worship songs, older worship songs, and that is not something we have here. And so for you and me to keep up with some of the new stuff coming out and being encouraged by it, as well as clinging to some of the older things, we got to be a little more purposeful. And so what I would encourage you to do is, as you hear new songs here at Calvary, if you're like, Oh, I've never heard that song, or I like that song. Man, if you got Spotify or Pandora, then there are a ton of really great worship playlists that you can listen to, and it'll, again, blend. You've got to choose different ones, but just a great opportunity for you to, to hear and keep in your mind songs that would be maybe familiar to you, and then also some new rich songs. So that's the public service announcement, but it's always... Um, good to continue to worship throughout the week through song, and it's good when you're familiar with the songs to come, and and you have an opportunity to familiarize yourselves with some of the things we sing here at Calvary. So, love for you to do that. I love that song. Um, Not so much the melody, but, and I do like the melody, but uh, I love the words, this idea of hope, right, and that we're people who live uh, by faith and by hope, but the reality is one day we will live by sight. And uh, I'm excited about that day. And I know that for many in our church, interestingly, over the past couple of weeks, there's a lot of you who have lost um, family members, loved ones, moms, siblings, and I know that's a, a challenge. And so it's good to cling to hope and remember what our faith really is about. We try to have this policy to inform you of different members who have passed away. I shared that last week. One individual um, who is now with <clears throat> Jesus, Bob Fay, had an awesome service here this week uh, remembering and honoring his life. And then another individual who's just been a faithful part of our church for many years, a lady named Dorothy Armstrong, is now experiencing the words we just sung. Most of you do not know Dorothy. Probably seven years ago, eight years ago, um, she was baptized. And at that point, she was in her 70s, maybe older. I don't know. You don't ask those things, right? But if I was to speculate, and because of health reasons, she couldn't, we couldn't dunk her in the tank. Uh, But man, she wanted to tell the story of how Jesus changed her life. And so we had the opportunity to, uh, to sprinkle her, right? We christened her, sprinkled her. And I just remember that day and just the amazing faith of a senior citizen who's like, yeah, all these young kids are getting baptized, but man, I love Jesus and he's changed my story and I'm 70 plus years old and I'm gonna celebrate that with people. And now she's celebrating with Jesus. And so a life well <clears throat> lived. So want to let you know about that, and another thing I want to let you know about is something you've heard before, right? You've heard this before. Hopefully, we, uh, somebody learned this news this week, and they're like, if you tell me one more time that there's one service next week at 9 o'clock in a family meeting, like, I'm going to, you know, go crazy. That's good. That's right where we want you. We want you to be so sick of hearing this announcement that, that because when you're sick of it, you've actually heard it right? When you're sick of it and say, I don't want to hear it again. You've actually heard it. Here's what you may never, ever, ever want to hear again. Next Sunday, if you come at this time, you will not, we, you, the service will be over. We'll have worshiped Jesus and heard his word because next week we're all gathering together in one service to worship together, which we're super excited about again when we, uh, and as we grow, and we are going to probably outgrow pretty quickly. We'll c- circle back to two, but for the, man, for the foreseeable future, one service. And then after that service next week, we're going to have a family meeting. Because we're really excited for a year or so, been working on a vision of what we feel God pressing our church to be in this season and in the future. And we want to share that with you, and we want to let you know what we're moving into. And then what we're going to do with that family meeting is share some of that, the reasoning, what it's about. And then we're going to invite you to help us push that forward. 
and we're going to have some ways for you to learn about various opportunities to serve, and then we're going to ask you to. And we're not doing that because we're desperate for people to serve, although we do need people to serve. We're doing that because that's what God wants you to do. And as a group of leaders, it's important for us to put out to you opportunities for you to use your gifts and to serve. We are a body. The Bible talks about that a lot. And bodies have eyes and arms and legs and feet, and every single one of those play a purpose and have a part. And you have a part. And so we're excited to invite you to, man, at the end of the next week after we share the vision and commitment, to plant a flag and say, you know what, I want to learn more about that or I'm going to do that. And we'll, we'll roll all that out next week. So one service next week at 9 o'clock and the family meeting after. <clears throat> then we're going to kick off a bunch of new environments on the 20th. So we're excited about that. So with that said, we're going to jump into God's word. And uh, it's good to see you guys. And for those who are online, it's uh, good to see you know it's um, really interesting. There's a bunch of folks, some who aren't even local, who enjoy hearing God's word and what we're doing here at Calvary online. Um, there's some other folks who are local, and you might rather just sit home in your jammies and eat your waffles. We'd love for you to come here and worship Jesus with us, um, and so that'd be good. And, and we're all, no matter where you are, in person or virtual, we're going to jump into God's word in a minute, so let me pray. Father, um, thank you. Thank you for faith and the hope that you give to us and for those families who are uh, processing the, the loss of someone they love. Will you just give great strength and help your presence to be near to them during this time? As we open up your word, God, in a new series, I pray that you will work through it and we will hear from you. And we know your word doesn't return void. And so, Father, um, we just come expectantly and I come dependently knowing that there's no power in anything that I say, but the power is from your word and from the Holy Spirit. And so I ask you to work so that we're shaped in the type of people you want us to be, <clears throat> so that we live well for the honor and for the glory of Jesus, our King. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to um, confess something. Uh, I, when I was preparing this service, this sermon, I had, and I still have really, I had no idea how to start the sermon. I had no idea how to start today's sermon. I had no idea how to start uh, kicking off this brand new sermon series, right? And um, if you've paid attention to church, you know usually the dude who gets up here with the wraparound mic usually starts with like a question or a story or an illustration about a dog running crazy, right? There's usually this, this, this illustration, this image, this opening, this introduction. And I had no idea how to start and fill this moment. And that wasn't because it's like my first time preaching. <clears throat> I've done this gig a little bit now, and it wasn't for lack of effort. It wasn't because I didn't think about it. I, I literally think I sat in my office and kicked my feet up on my desk and stared out the window for probably 20 minutes. And I'm like, I don't know how to start. And then after those 20 minutes, I turned my chair a little bit and stared at my bookshelf and thought, <clears throat> I still don't know how to start. And it wasn't for lack of effort. It's not because I couldn't do it. I think there's three reasons why it was a challenge for me to figure out the best way to start this moment. And one challenge is we're, we're kicking off this new series today. And if you're visiting with us or checking us out online, what we do 99% of the time is we open up a book of the Bible and we work our way through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And I'm really excited about this series that we're about to start. We're about to start this series in the book of Nehemiah, and I am really excited about it, and I'm excited about it for this reason. Because like all of God's Word, I think that this sermon series and what we study in it, I think it has the potential to make a huge impact in your life. I think this sermon series, for some of you, the very questions you've been asking or the very things you've been processing through or where God has you in, his, in your life, this sermon series, I think, can speak into that and can shape you and can move you and can alter the trajectory of your priorities and your life. And I'm excited about that. And so then the thought is, okay, well, what little story or what illustration helps convey that? And I, I couldn't get one that seemed to work and not be... Cheesy. The other reason I think it was a challenge was because I'm sobered. Because not only does this, this sermon series, God's Word, always every time you open it has the potential to change your life. But I'm sobered because you know what? We also have the potential that eight weeks, nine weeks from now, whenever we're done with this, nothing has changed. <clears throat> nothing has changed in my life. Nothing has changed in your life. Nothing has changed in our life that we've missed it. We've missed it. 
and that God wanted to speak to you and wanted to impact you and wanted to grow you, and you didn't grab onto what he was trying to do. And if that's the case, then we've kind of wasted our time, and I don't want to waste our time. I was sobered by it. And how do you come up with an opening story or an illustration that conveys that? And I think the third and probably biggest reason that it was a challenge for me to, to figure out how to start today was because I, <clears throat> I know where we're going today, by the way. Right? I know how the sermon's going to end. I know what happens in the book. I know what we're going to talk about. And I just got stuck in this place of some pretty significant introspection and some pretty significant um, thinking of my own story. And knowing where God is going to take us in his word today, and I I just got stuck staring out the window thinking, man, what do those truths mean for my life? And I processed that, and I think that's good and that's important, but I didn't know how to capture that in an image or an illustration. I didn't know how to start today's service. I didn't know what to do to fill this space, but I do know two Bible verses I actually know about four, just in case you're worried. But I do know at least two Bible verses, and I know two Bible verses that relate to what we're going to see today. One of them is one I've mentioned before, and it's actually one of my wife's favorite verses. But, but here's the first Bible verse I know. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, and it says this to us. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's what this verse is saying, that every single person in this room, every person, single person listening to this or watching it later in the week, you have been specifically created and designed by God. He has made you in a certain way with a certain part of your story. And part of why he's designed you the way he's designed you is because he also has created specific things that he wants you to do specific, particular, unique ways that he wants you to serve him, right? He's created you, he's designed you, and as he was designing and creating you, he looked through history and he knew the role that he wanted you to play and what he wanted you to do, and he's prepared things for every single one of you to do. Not ultimately for you, but for his kingdom and his glory. You have a purpose, You have a specific design so that God will do something specific through you. And then there's a second verse that kind of piggybacks that, right? And it says this. For the eyes of the Lord, and we're pulling it out of the NIV, not to be a Bible nerd. Usually I got an ESV up here, but I think the NIV, New International, actually translates better. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Here's what this verse is saying, that at this very moment, the God of the universe is scanning the earth. And he's saying, man, I want a seven-year-old whose heart's fully committed to me. I want a 47-year-old whose heart's fully committed to me. I want a 77-year-old whose heart's fully committed to me. And as their hearts are fully committed to me, I will come along and I will strengthen them. Every single one of you listening has been made in a particular way to do some particular things for God. And God, at this moment, is looking down, scanning the earth, saying, man, whose heart's committed? Who's in? Because I'll support them, and I'll strengthen them, and I'll be with them as they press into the particular works for which I have designed them to do. And so that kind of raises two questions, right? And and it's important as we talk about these works, it, it doesn't mean necessarily something extraordinary, When we get through the sermon and talk about it, let me just put this disclaimer up front. This is not like you have to go sell everything and build an orphanage somewhere, although you know what? Maybe that is what God wants you to do. But this doesn't necessarily call you to do something extraordinary because sometimes the most faithful things we can do is serve God in ordinary ways. And in the ordinary scope of our life, do it for the glory of God, how he made us and where we placed it. It's not about doing extraordinary things necessarily. It's about doing ordinary things well, depending on God, with a heart fully committed to him. And if he chooses to do extraordinary things, what a blessing. It's not about being famous, but it's about being faithful. And so the question for you, based on these two verses that we kind of find ourselves thinking about this morning is, 
So if you've been made in a particular purpose for particular things, what is it that God wants you to do? You. What is it that God wants you to do? And the second question that aligns with that is this. Is your heart aligned and fully committed to his heart? We're going to start, as we have those questions in the back of our mind, we're going to start a series today, and we're going to look at a guy who, man, he, he knew how to answer those questions. We're going to look at a guy whose heart was fully committed to God and said, God, I'm in. And we're going to look at a guy who he knew. God revealed to him what it was that he wanted this man to do. And this guy, he didn't miss that moment. He stepped up because his heart was committed and, and God strengthened him and he was able to do it. And I hope as we in a moment launch into this, that through this series, I hope that your heart more closely aligns with the concerns of God's heart. I hope that your heart and my heart shift off of all the trivial, insignificant things that we concern ourselves with. And that the desires of my heart and the priorities of my heart and the desires of your heart and the priorities of your heart will align with the heart of God. And I hope not only will our hearts align that through our weeks together we're going to identify, man, I think I know what it is that God wants me to do. And then I hope that you will actually step up and start doing it. Extraordinary things, maybe. Ordinary things, maybe. But that you'll step up. <clears throat> Today, we're going to kick off and we're going to see two things. As I said, we're in this book called Nehemiah. Uh, and if you've got a device, if you've got your Bible, if you've got, like, I don't know, a carrier pigeon that will bring the text to you, grab that, open it up, Nehemiah. And we're going to see two things today. We're going to see some historical background and setting of the book, and then the second thing we're going to pull and see some things about Nehemiah. So let's start by seeing the, the background of Nehemiah. Anybody here ever watch Marvel movies? Okay, good. It's okay. It's not a sin. You can raise your hand. Oh, I've never watched a movie in my life, right? Okay. Uh, Marvel movies, I remember my, I always get nervous saying things, hey, sometimes my kids watch it, but a lot of times they don't. But I remember my son a few years ago, I'm like, oh, you want to watch a Marvel movie? He's like, dad, Marvel movies are for nerds. I'm like, okay, that's fine. You know, and then I think he came back like this summer or fall for something. And the dude is like on the couch eating Cheetos watching 79,000 hours of Marvel movies. Right? He gets through it. He starts it over again. I'm like, well, what about the Marvel movies are for nerds? He's like, Dad, Marvel movies are cool. I'm like, okay, I don't know. Well, we watch Marvel movies, whether it was through the quarantine or maybe when we finished them. But my, we, we kind of started the wrong way. We started out of order. My daughter liked Ant-Man. Okay. She had a preference for Ant-Man. Ant-Man kind of starts in the middle of things. So we jumped into that movie and then we're like, oh, Ant-Man seems cool. But we jumped into another movie. And when you start in the middle of the Marvel sequence, it's like, bro, I don't know what's going on. Like you, you look and you're like, I thought Thor was this Norwegian god. Old boy's like 400 pounds and looks like he hasn't bathed in two weeks. What's going on? We're watching Captain America. Who's this Doctor Strange? You, you have no idea what's going on. In order to understand the story, you need to know what happened before the story, right, in Marvel movies. And the same thing is true with Nehemiah. In order for us to understand the book of Nehemiah and the story of Nehemiah, we need to understand what happened before Nehemiah. So here is eight minutes of amazing 40,000-foot view of Israel's history in eight minutes. There were these group of people, God's chosen people. They were the Jewish people. Some of you might know this. Some of you might not know this, but for a period of time, they were slaves in the nation of Egypt. And God came to them and said, hey, you're my people, you're enslaved, but I have this plan for you to get into this place, into this land, into this nation that I am going to give to you. And so he eventually got them into this land. And we have this little timeline of what happens here. And he got them into this land. There's different kings that come along. And what happened is there was this king named Solomon. And 957 years before Jesus was born, Solomon makes this temple. Now, th this temple, it's a little different for you and me today. For you and I today, you do, you do not need to come to Calvary Church in order to worship God. You do not need a priest in order to pray to God. You can be home in your, in your backyard and you can worship God. You can pray to God. That is true. Now, it's ultimately not good for you to be alone by yourself, right? It is important for you to be with other Christians in a room together worshiping God. But back in the day, 
They couldn't sit in their lawn chairs in their backyard and worship God. The temple was the center of their worship. So if they wanted to worship God, they had to come to the temple, and God's presence was, was physically and symbolically located in the temple. So the temple was built. And then along the way, what different kings did, right, the temple was built in the city of Jerusalem, and along the way, different kings came, and they built these walls around the city of Jerusalem. When David became king, he strengthened the walls, right? So he built the walls. When Solomon built this temple, he, he made the walls even bigger, right, to protect it. And then the, finally, there was a king named Hezekiah who looked around and he saw like, oh man, it's been like 10 years since we've run down these walls, we need to work on it. So Hezekiah was kind of this last big building project. The, temp- the purpose of the walls was to keep the city safe, but more importantly and also the purpose of the walls was to keep the temple safe, the worship of God safe, and the worshipers of God safe. The Jewish people were like you, the Jewish people were like me, and they sinned. <clears throat> and so... Ultimately, as a consequence for their sin, this nation called Babylon came in and there'd been a civil war and the, Israel was too... But Babylon rolled into town and they eventually conquered and defeated the nation of Israel. And they rolled into Jerusalem and they destroyed the city. And we, we read a little bit about what happens when these guys came into town. Second Chronicles will be on the screen, but here's what it says. Babylonians, this is what they did. And they burned the house of God... And they broke down the wall of Jerusalem. And they burned all his palaces with fire and they destroyed his precious vessels. They broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned the temple. And they destroyed it. And the very core of what it meant to be able to go worship God and the place that you went to interact with living God is now smoke is rising from the ashes. And the walls that used to protect that, you're like, they're like walking over. It looks like a bomb strike happened. And that wasn't the only thing that happened. Here's what else happened. He, meaning the king of Babylon, took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. And they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. So back to our timeline, here's what's happened. Babylonians have come in, they've destroyed the temple, and they've taken prisoners of war. If you've ever heard, again, not everybody has, if you've ever heard of like Daniel in the lion's den, or the guy named Daniel, Daniel was actually one of the young men who was taken as a prisoner of war uh, out of the country. So Babylon's in charge now. There is no more Israel. The Jewish people, most of them are prisoners of war and split all over the place. Then one day, Persia has got like the newest drone missiles, right? Fancy stealth fighters. And Persia beats Babylon. Babylon was this amazing empire, this amazing kingdom. Persia comes in and defeats them. And when Persia comes, there's a king named Cyrus. And Cyrus takes over. He's like, man, this is what the prior empire did to the Jewish people. He looks around at all these Jewish people, and he issues an executive order. He issues a decree. And as he's looking around, realizing, man, Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. Jewish people are here. Here's what Cyrus tells and says. This is his executive decree. You can, there it goes. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it into writing. And here's this proclamation. Ready? Here it goes. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all of his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. Here's what Cyrus does. He sees all these prisoners of war. He knows the temple is critical, and he says, you know what? Man, y'all are free to go. You guys, go back to your country. Go back to your homeland. Rebuild the temple. Prioritize the worship of your God again. You're free to go. And so then, over the next, I don't know the exact dates, maybe 100 years or so, this starts to happen. And we go back to our timeline, and what we see is that after he says it, two groups of people, two groups of 50-ish thousand and then another couple of groups of thousands return. 
And they have stops and starts, and they start building the temple, and they stop building the temple, and they start doing Jerusalem, and they stop building Jerusalem. And if you want to know what some of the prophets in the Old Testament, guys like Malachi, or all these guys are about, it's about like, man, you all need to stop re- renovating your kitchen, and you need to start rebuilding the temple. Stops and starts, finally they do it. Two groups have gone back, and they've rebuilt the temple. And they've rebuilt some of Jerusalem. And about 12 years after this last group of people have come back, we come to Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. And when we come to Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, we get a little context. And and here's what it says. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Nehemiah, this is his autobiography. Throughout the book, it's all in the first person, and most of it's in the first person. So Nehemiah has written this book. And and here's what it tells us. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the Citadel. Month of Chislev, 20th year, Susa the Citadel. What are all those words, right? Good words to know. Maybe good words for you to play Wordle. Anybody play Wordle? Yeah! If you do not play Wordle... Go home, right? Well, don't do it now. Somebody's going to do it now. Don't do it now. It's a sin to do it now. Go home and Google Wordle UK. It's this word game. Do it, and the next week we'll come and brag about how much smarter we are than all the other churches in the area because we did Wordle in three tries, okay? So what are these words we saw, right? Son of Hakaliah, Neom Chitman. Okay, the month of Chislev. This is in the Hebrew calendar, and this is going to be really, really important for next week, but the month of Chislev is late November or early December, about 450 years before Jesus is born. Late November, early December, in the 20th year. Cyrus, the guy who issued the executive order, is no longer the king. There's a new king called Artaxerxes. And this dude, Artaxerxes, has been king for 20th years. And Nehemiah is hanging out in Susa, the citadel. King Artaxerxes is like a snowboard bird, right? He's got his winter house in Florida and his summer house on Martha's Vineyard, all right? And this Susa, the citadel, this is the winter capital. And so when the weather started getting cold, Artaxerxes would go down here. Nehemiah is here with him in this luxurious winter place in a warmer climate with a golf course out back, grilling some steaks on the grill, thinking to himself, man, this is pretty nice. What are all those crazy people in Connecticut doing with sleet and freezing rain? We learned something else about Nehemiah at the end of chapter 1, and this is what we learn about him. It says that I was cupbearer to the king. Cupbearer to the king. Here is Nehemiah's job. He is a Jewish guy, but he's got this job working for King Artaxerxes. And his job is he would select the wine for every meal that the king was going to have wine. He'd go and choose it, and then what he would do is he'd take a sip of it. And the king would kind of watch for about 45 minutes, and if Nehemiah didn't start like foaming at the mouth and seizing on the ground and convulsing, then the king would think like, okay, I guess the wine's okay to eat. It's not poisoned. If Nehemiah started foaming and convulsing and seizing on the ground, the king might be like, yeah, I think I'll take the Merlot instead, right? So Nehemiah would taste the food to make sure it wasn't poisoned. This was a, obviously a huge role where trust was developed between the king and Nehemiah. Out of that trust, Nehemiah would then, he, he had this, this often a role in the cabinet, often the cupbearers would then have a role in the administration, Right? Chief of staff, director of operations. So Nehemiah is a political person who has a political role, who's a cupbearer to the king, who also has become one of the king's trusted advisors. And this guy, who's hanging out in this nice plush palace in warm weather, drinking some sweet tea, who's in this powerful position in the kingdom, one day he talks to his brothers and some others and he gets some news. And and here's the news that we get. Verse 2 tells us this. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped. Now, the Jews who had escaped, right, this is the reference to, like, the Jews who actually had escaped their captivity and went back when Cyrus told them to. He's like, hey, 
I know that over the past years, been tens of thousands of thousands of thousands of Jews have left Babylon and going back to Jerusalem. And he's like, hey, how are things going for them? I asked him about the Jews who had escaped who survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. Great trouble and shame. That phrase, it's not like they got a paper cut or they're having a bad day. That phrase conveys this, this hardship, misery, right? Calamity is actually one of the nuances. The, these people who left to go rebuild the temple and rebuild Jerusalem are living there. They are having a really, really hard time. They're experiencing things that aren't supposed to be what they're experiencing. And then these guys go on to tell Nehemiah that here's the reason that these guys are, have fear, have worry, have de- depression, right? That they're facing calamity and shame. Here's the reason. Because the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. In the different returns, they'd fix the temple, they'd fix Jerusalem, but man, they'd never gotten to fully fix the walls. If Nehemiah hopped in a tour bus and went back to check out Jerusalem that day, he'd see a shiny rebuilt temple. He'd see some shiny rebuilt buildings. But when he went to go look at the wall, it would be like cinder blocks still crumbled down. Now, the Jewish people had tried to start the wall, but because of pressure, because of other enemies didn't like that, that building project gets stopped. And now they're in a place where they're supposed to worship God safely and freely and prioritize that, but the situation of this wall that's not in place is preventing that. Having walls in this culture around a city was essential and was critical. Look at what one historian said about the ancient Near East and the walls. This is what one guy says. You can pop the quote up there about the walls. Without a wall, this is a historian, no city in the ancient Near East was safe from bandits, gangs, and wild animals, even though the empire was at peace. The more economically and culturally developed a city was, the greater the value of things in the city and the greater the need for the wall. Then this historian talks about the temple per se, and they say these words. The temple, with its rich decorations, would have been particularly at risk. Practically speaking, no wall means no city, and no city means no temple. The last is a verse that's supposed to be the next one, right? But no wall means no city, and no city means no temple. This historian is telling us why walls are so important. Let me just, I'm going to pause for a minute, okay? Don't get mad at me. Promise you won't get mad at me? Okay. We've talked a lot about walls, right? We've used that word a lot. A Bible verse is going to tell a guy about the walls. The walls are crumbled down. This historian is talking about the importance of walls and cities. It is really important for you to have a proper biblical hermeneutic. That's a big fancy word. Some of y'all are like, I don't even know what a, I, I can't even have a proper biblical hermeneutic because I don't even know what a hermeneutic is. This is what a hermeneutic means. How do we understand the book? When we understand certain, certain things about certain cultures, how do we know what is for that culture? How do we know what is for the other culture? And look, just because the Bible and the book of Nehemiah talks about walls, <clears throat> just because this, this, this writer talks about the importance of walls in the ancient Near East, we need to be very, very careful instantly taking a Bible verse about walls and applying it to the public policy of America question is there is words written in a particular culture to a particular group of people. Why was walls important to them? Does that have anything to do with what we're going through with talk about walls today? Be very, very careful pulling a Bible verse out of context written to a group of people a long time ago and trying to apply that per se to things that we face today. If you want to talk more about that, I'd be happy to talk about that. But sometimes we get confused because we're like, does it, blah, blah, blah. let's not get confused. In this culture, like we said, to protect the temple and to the worship of God and the cities in those days, these walls were huge. And what we see here is practically speaking, no wall means no city and no city means no temple. And no temple means no worship of God. Without walls... God's city was at risk. Without walls, 
God's people were at risk, and more importantly, without walls in that moment, in that culture, the worship of God at the temple was at risk. And that wasn't good. The core of what it meant to be a worshiper of God had the potential of being hindered. And the people knew this isn't good. We're in a tough spot. And that's why they had great trouble and shame. How did this land on this Jewish guy who was in this plush palace getting a suntan when he heard this news? Here's how it landed on him. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You know how it landed? Man, Nehemiah was brokenhearted by it. He knew that what the people were facing, he knew that the risk to the worship of God, he knew that the inability to be safe, he knew that all of that being threatened, this wasn't what God wanted. It wasn't the way that it was supposed to be. It's not what God wanted. It's not good for these people. God wanted their worship and wanted the temple to be the certain purpose of their lives, and all of that was at risk. And when he heard that, he cried. He mourned. It landed on him. What we see from Nehemiah's response is that Nehemiah recognized this problem. Nehemiah recognized this need, but, but let me tighten that up a little bit. And, and here's what we see. Nehemiah recognized this gap between God's ideal and the real. God's ideal is flourishing, safe, worship, <clears throat> right? The people freely coming. The ideal was that all that might be threatened and worship could be hindered. Now, he could have easily ignored that. He could have seen that gap between the ideal and the real and been like, oh, not my problem. Do you know how when you get a phone call on your iPhone, you have a choice? You can hit accept or you can hit, I don't know if it's dismiss or ignore, right? You have a choice. If you're in the middle of something, if you're bothered by it, you can be like, bloop, nope, don't want to deal with it dismiss it, ignore it. Nehemiah, man, he could just ignore this. He could just push the button and said, man, I'm almost a thousand miles away. That's too bad for them, but nope. I don't, I'm just going to go. I got other things to do. I got to taste some wine. I got to choose some. I got to, he could have dismissed it. He could have ignored it, but he didn't. He recognized the problem. He recognized the need. He recognized a gap between God's ideal and God's real, and he paid attention. The question for you and the question for me is how many times do we simply ignore or dismiss or not think about those needs around us, those problems around us, those gaps around us that we see between God's ideal and the way that God wants it to be and the way that it really is. Is there a need? Is there a problem? Is there a gap around you that you've just dismissed? You've just ignored? You, you breezed over it because, man, you got to get to the dry cleaner and oh, I'll get a mocha on the way. And then you got, man, I got to get home and finish up watching This Is Us because it's like the last season of This Is Us. And I got so much to do, I can't be bothered by that need right now, by that problem right now, by that gap right now. So, dismiss. And again, this could be an extraordinary thing or it could just be an ordinary thing. As a parent, as a friend, when we see issues around us in our culture and our society, and there's something else that we see about Nehemiah, right? We see that when he saw this, he wept and he mourned, and, and here's what happens. Nehemiah recognized the gap between God's ideal and the real and then that gap in need grabbed Nehemiah's heart. That gap and that need grabbed Nehemiah's heart. His deep concern for the way God wanted things to be grabbed him. He could have dismissed it. It didn't directly impact him. What they were facing there didn't directly impact him. He could have blown over it. He could have ignored it. But it's not the way that God wanted it to be. It's a problem. It's a need. It's a gap. And that grabbed him. 
and it didn't let him go. He wasn't desensitized. He wasn't apathetic. He was moved. He was engaged. And spoiler alert, it's going to cause him to stand in the gap. I have a yellow lab that some of you <clears throat> have heard about. And Ford, right? Ford is so sweet. Ford has this thing right when you're just ready to relax and watch TV. I mean, like, it's been a long day. I just want to watch me some TV. What Ford does is he comes up with his little bone in his mouth and, like, a little toy that's all nasty and slobbery. You know, and he kind of he puts it, like, on your leg as you're sitting down, and then he just looks at you. Right? And it's like man, I just want to open the door and let you run wild. But you're so cute, I can't do that. So he puts this little knot up bone, and, just, and so you know what you do? You, you, you grab it a little bit, and when you apply a little pressure to it, what do you think he does? He, pull, he pulls back, right? He kind of tugs it a little bit. And, and so you grab on a little boy, and he doesn't let go. He just keeps tugging more, and he keeps tugging more, and he keeps tugging more and tugging and tugging. Man, God was tugging on Nehemiah's heart. And he kept tugging. And if you've ever had God tug on your heart to do something, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That one day you just realize there's this need, this, there's problem, there's this issue, there's this gap, and you're like, man, that's not the way God wants it to be. Tug. Tug. Two, three days later, you're driving in your car and tug. And God keeps tugging and tugging and tugging, and pulling you, and drawing you, and you can't let go of this need, and God's tugging at you. And maybe for some of you right now, you know exactly what it is and where it is that God's been tugging you. I mean, my, my, my yellow lab, like, eventually you get to the point that he's, like, pulling you across the hardwood floors he's pulling so hard. Maybe that's where some of you are right now. You know exactly what it means for God to be tugging at your heart on something. Maybe it's something you need to be doing as a parent. Maybe it's something you need to be doing at school. Maybe it's a need you need to fix. But God is just like, boom, boom, boom. Maybe some of you don't have any idea what that is, and that's okay perhaps because God doesn't constantly tug, but it's not okay if you aren't putting yourself in places to hear from God about the place in which he may want you to be engaged. If you're desensitized to it, if you're ignoring it, if you're not putting yourself in a place to be willing and open for God's tugging, that's, that's not okay. Nehemiah's heart was grabbed. God didn't let go. Nehemiah had a holy discontent. A holy discontent because of the brokenness and the problem and the gap that he saw around him. What's grabbing your heart? What's grabbing your heart? And if nothing is, why? Why? If you grew up in, or you were alive in the 70s or 80s, uh, you're probably familiar with a book, a guy named David Wilkerson. Anybody know about David Wilkerson? Okay, well, maybe that's better. You don't play Wordle, but you've heard of him. David Wilkerson was a guy who uh, moved into New York City, and God had tugged on his heart to try to... David Wilkerson had heard of living far away, heard about all the gangs in New York City, right? And so he moved there, and he kind of had this street ministry. He started other things, but his, his heart was to serve gang members, right, and build relationships with them, help show them the gospel. And he'd done that for many, many years, and 28 years after coming to New York City... He was walking through Times Square one time in 1986 at midnight. A couple years ago, it was no problem. You walk through Times Square at midnight all you want. Now, eh, 1986, no. Because in 1986, Times Square at midnight, Times Square at 12 noon, it was not the place you wanted to be. It was like a haven for drugs, for prostitutes. There wasn't no Shake Shack or TKTS booths. They were like theaters that, man, you didn't even walk past them. They were so disgusting and inappropriate. At midnight, David Wilkerson, this guy who's been in the city for a long time, is, is walking through this with all of this. And it was one of those Nehemiah moments where the emptiness and the brokenness in the situation grabbed him. And as he's walking through there, right, he, he said that he started to kind of just be emotionally moved, and he recounts his prayer and the spiritual emptiness, and this is what he writes. 
I saw nine, 10, and 11-year-old kids bombed on crack cocaine. I walked down 42nd Street where they were selling crack. Len Bias, the famous basketball player, had just died of a crack overdose. And the pusher was yelling, hey, I've got the stuff that killed Len. And then this guy writes this, I wept and I prayed. Because that's not the way God wants things to be. The emptiness, the brokenness, the sin. This guy had a Nehemiah moment. I wept and I prayed and then here's his prayer. God, you've got to raise up a testimony in this hellish place. And he says the answer was not what I wanted to hear because what he felt God impressing upon him was this. Well, you know the city. You've been here. You do it. You do it. And he did. And today if you got on a train from Fairfield Metro or Bridgeport and went into Grand Central and caught an Uber and went in the vicinity of Times Square, you would, when pre-COVID, you would be standing in line to get into a, a place of worship known as Times Square Church. And Times Square Church is this vibrant church that serves and impacts thousands of people that began years ago because one guy saw a problem and it tugged his heart and God said, yeah, it is a problem. Somebody should do something about it. You're the guy. <clears throat> in Savannah, I worked with a guy named uh, Jay Thompson. Jay Thompson was a little taller than me, gangly old southern boy. I mean, when you think southern accent, you think of the deepest southern accent you've ever heard, and then you multiply it by like 42,000, okay? He used to call me Yankee boy, and I'd call him big country, right? Big country. What's up, Yankee boy? Now, Jay was good for me because when I would be in a meeting and I would start to get a little agitated, he would just put his hand on my shoulder and be like, it's okay, Yankee boy, settle down, right? He was like my governor to kind of calm me down from going Bronx on people in meetings. Jay Thompson grew up in a situation where his dad abandoned him. And for a period of time in his life, oh, man, he drifted. He didn't have a, a mentor. He didn't have an influence. His mom remarried, and the man she remarried actually ended up adopting Jay and filled in the role of a father and is his father, adoptive father, right? And, man, that man played a huge role in mentoring in Jay's life. Jay Thompson was our family pastor at my church in Savannah. But, man, Jay, Jay was always a guy who knew how that uh, guy who adopted him mentored him and poured into him. And Jay looked around at just the countless number of kids in Savannah who for whatever reason didn't have a dad, didn't have a mentor, because drug abuse, incarceration, death, right, abandonment, and man, that, that tugged at Jay's heart. And he said, man, I love serving as a family pastor here, but there's something God wants me to do. There's a need that God wants me to meet. And so Jay stepped out and he quit his job and he started this nonprofit called Excel Strategies, where his point is to fuel young men and young women with purpose through mentorship to give them something in their lives that's helping them and training them and instructing them. That kept tugging at Jay, and he couldn't let it go until he finally said, man, I'm looking around this cultural landscape, and there's a gap between God's ideal and the real, and I want to fill in that gap, and God won't stop tugging me. And countless young men and young girls that didn't have a godly influence in their lives, man, their lives have been impacted because somebody took the time to care. Because they didn't dismiss it. They didn't ignore it. They followed the tug. When I would leave my house, I would go home for lunch here in Trumbull. I would pull out of my driveway and I would pass on the side of the road all these cars by a house. And those cars by that house were a group of moms here in Trumbull. Who they said, man, there's this gap because as a mom, I'm not praying enough for my kids. They said, we're not praying enough for these kids. So these moms would meet weekly. And all they would do would devote their time to say, man, we're going to pray for our kids. We're going to commit to doing that. We're going to stand in the gap, and we're going to stand up and do it. And I could go on and on and on. I could tell you about Eve Happis, a, an amazing member of this church who's now with Jesus. Man, she saw this gap, and the people weren't being encouraged. And so she filled that gap, right, to write cards and to encourage and to be faithful Bill Huff, a guy here who retired out of a corporate career, successful. I didn't say this in the first service because he was throwing stuff at me. Man, old boy should be traveling the world. Do you know what he did? He saw, man, there's a gap at Calvary. 
and there's the need for somebody with my gifts to come along, and I bribed him with lots of free coffee, and he's joined our staff. And instead of just wasting leisure time, man, he's engaged in pressing this place further and forward for the glory of God, God in terms of operations and other things. Is God tugging at your heart? Is God pulling at you? What purpose has he made you for? What does he want you to do? Once Nehemiah's heart was grabbed, what did he do? Once he saw this gap between the real and the ideal, what did he not do? What was his first thing that he stepped out and do? Right? What should you do? What should I do? How do we figure that out? Well, guess what? You've got to come back next week for all that. Okay? That's next week. But this week, the question is, is your heart grabbed and broken by the things that matter to the heart of God? And if not, why not? I'm going to ask Emmanuel and the team to come forward, and I just want to leave you with three things I'd love for you to do this week. I would love you first. I want you to evaluate, I want you to ask, and I want you to decide. Evaluate, ask, and decide. Here's what I want you to evaluate. Have you become desensitized to problems and to needs around you? Have you become desensitized to problems or needs around you and the second thing I'd want you to evaluate is this. Is there a particular needed problem that's currently tugging at your heart? Have you become desensitized and that's why you don't even feel it? Or is there a particular need and problem that's been tugging your heart? Again, it doesn't have to be something extraordinary. It can be the most ordinary need in the world. It can be the most ordinary thing, right? Man, I want to be the best stay-at-home mom I can. I want to wash dishes and change diapers in a way that honors and pours to my kids. Is there a need? Is there something tugging? Or are you desensitized? Then after that, what I'd love for you to do is to ask, <clears throat> right? Just ask, okay, God, man, I want you to reveal to me if there's something around me that you want me to press into to stand in the gap. I want you to reveal to me that thing that you've created me to do. Now, that does not mean that God's going to text you on the way home today. That may be a prayer that you pray for four months, five months, four years. But this is what I know. God is not the God of the status quo. And if your life and your Christian walk has become status quo, that is not the work of God. Because God is a God who keeps making us forward and keeps making us mature and keeps giving to us opportunities to serve him and plug into him. Will you ask God to reveal to you, and it may not be a text on the way home, but I promise you one day and someday, God will make very clear to you what to do. And then the third thing I want you to do is decide. And, and here's what I want you to decide. As God reveals to you what it is that he wants you to do, where he wants you to serve, the need he wants you to meet, will you be willing to stand up and do it? Decide that now if you don't know, and if you do know, man, decide why are you not doing it? What, what if there's a problem around you that you see, and what if you're like, man, that's really unfortunate. Somebody should really fix that. Somebody should really do that. And what if this whole point of this Nehemiah series is God looking at you saying, yeah, you know what? You're right. Somebody should. And that somebody is you. Evaluate, ask, decide. And then look forward to what God will do in your story as your heart is fully committed to him as he strengthens and supports you in the work for which he has made you to do. I invite you to stand up. Let's worship as we end our time together. Thank you.